Out of the pen and onto the mound, it's the second hour here of Sports Talk. Joining me, Scott Beatty, is Evan Kahn. Ride until 6 o'clock. Had a fun first hour. Got uh, an unplanned visit from Luke Goody, Illinois Men's Basketball. So encourage you to check out our convo with him. If you missed that, it'll be a podcast soon enough at WDWS.com and however you get your podcasts. This hour, we have baseball on the mind. Is that because we have baseball in our hearts? Yes, that's the answer. We've got some baseball talk. Adrian Burgos Jr. is a friend of the program, history professor at U of I, sports historian, and part of the Hall of Fame and part of the effort to bring Minnie Minoso into the Hall of Fame. He spent last weekend at Cooperstown. He's, in fact, still out in New York uh, doing some baseball activities and, and beyond and Got to rub shoulders, as he often does, with some of the game's legends. So uh, we will talk with him about all of that coming up this hour as well. Some of the big items of the day, Evan, the non-con schedule. We were just debating that. find it? What's that? The, the unofficial schedule to compare to see if this guy is a valid source. Oh, the uh, bracketeer.org? Yes. Yes. And how it, close? He was spot on. Spot on on all yeah. of them. Okay, he so. didn't have all the dates. He okay. had a few dates that were TBD. But he, but he had all the opponents. All right. Yeah. He yeah he knew uh, he did not have Lindenwood. Ah, which I don't think is going to count. Well, they're D one now. Oh, did they move in? Because yeah. when they played three years ago, it didn't count. Exactly. Yeah. They're D one now, but they are in some sort of that probationary thing. When you move uh, into D one, we're yes. like they couldn't make the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it will count for the record. Yeah, it usually counts for this record and the stats. I would assume it counts in net ranking and all that. Mm, okay. But let's be honest, it's not going to do any any help to you by winning that game. That's just a, a schedule filler. Yeah, yeah. Game. You get guys reps, get everybody in. Yeah. If I remember right, when that game happened three years ago, pretty much everybody played and almost everybody got a bucket, and that's kind of the goal for those games. Yes, it's the... Friday after Thanksgiving, it's the five Daily days. full of turkey. Yes, <laughs> it's the five days after Vegas trip uh, game. Your previous game would have been against either Baylor or Virginia, mm-hmm. and your upcoming game is against Syracuse, and you have two more games in there against Big Ten opponents, so I get it. Mm. You, so that's where you think the Big Ten weekend is as well? I don't know that for sure, but it's right. been historically it's been the first weekend of December. Mm-hmm. Did they split them up last year? Did was it were they both in a weekend last year, or did they? It was like a it was like a Saturday Monday or a Sunday Tuesday kind of thing. Because I remember that Iowa game was a weekday. Mm-hmm. So that might be something similar because Illinois is playing that Tuesday, first Tuesday in December at Texas, yes. uh, in New York City against, against Texas. Texas. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that they're going to go Friday Sunday Tuesday Big Ten Big Ten Big Twelve matchup. They could. That's a lot. That, that would, yeah, that'd be quite the gauntlet. Yeah, that'd be coming hot and heavy. <laughs> uh, but they got a 13 game window between December 6th and December 17th. Of course, finals are finals in there. Are, that's finals week for sure. These are the things I like to think about. So, you know, maybe you don't want to think about them, but I, I just think about these things. Um, 
there is an element to who cares? Just tell me the schedule when we know the schedule. So we know well, some of the we, schedule. Now we do. Yeah. yeah. With exception of those two Big Ten games and those other 18 Big Ten games, we know the schedule. Which will come <laughs> in about two or three weeks because, you know, we just got to we just gotta stretch this thing out as long <laughs> we, as possible. We, we got to advance this little by little, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't poco, we? Poco. Um, I do like Eastern Illinois as a first game, understanding that a first game is usually that kind of a matchup in mm-hmm. terms of competition. Why not? Uh, a regional partner, a, a keep it in in the family, so to speak, and bring up the, the, the buds from Chucktown and have a little game and things come full circle for Brad Underwood. He better not lose that game because this one counts. <laughs> Maybe he feels a, a little more confident in his team that he makes it an official game rather than an exhibition game, as was the case the first time they matched up. Uh, one other item I wanted to highlight because um, it, watch lists – don't have a ton of meaning to me, but I do like this one and Talon Letsy mm-hmm. on the Werfel Trophy watch list. And we talked with Talon, and this is to the best football player who combines exemplary community service with leadership achievement on and off the field, named for Florida quarterback Danny Werfel. And uh, some of what Talon's do- done, run the free kids camp each of the last two summers, the Packed for success backpack drive here in the community. Uh, volunteers at a whole number of things and really is out there in mostly impacting youth here in Champaign Urbana. So, uh, of all the watch lists, you know, <laughs> Calvin Hart for Butkus and uh, Chase Brown for Maxwell and Doak Walker, those are great, well deserved, but I'd be proud if I won the Werfel Trophy. <laughs> So good for Taylor. Yeah, that would be that would be really cool. A, a guy that's already got a, a family of his own, and he's still going to school and trying to play D one football, and, and he does all that for the community as well. Uh, I'm sure it has something to do with the way he was brought up, or, or, or some experiences, and just being able to to give back with all that's that's on his plate. And now he, he's getting recognized nationally for it. Baseball. Baseball, the leader in the sweepstakes for Juan Soto, according to some, unless something has changed, is now San Diego. San Diego seems to be the front runner in getting Juan Soto uh, the generational talent that we talked about. I, I mean, it's Buster only, so I don't, not going to discredit that. I, I put more on him than I do some of the other national baseball writers, but y- you know, you have to. Those writers with this always have to sift through who's try- who's got an agenda to push, mm-hmm. who's trying to get a message out to other teams, to to it, to agents, that kind of thing. So take it for what you will. I'm actually, as much as as a Cubs guy, I don't want to see Juan Soto in the NL Central. I'm just kind of intrigued if he would end up in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. Because this went from, ah, St. Louis doesn't have the money, to, ooh, St. Louis might be the spot, to, oh, now it's San Diego. <laughs> And you know New York and both New York teams aren't just going to sit there when it comes to getting a guy like Juan Soto, and there's still the Seattle thing. So I don't know what to believe. And you were telling me yesterday out the door that we may not know this. Well, no. I read today that they might not even do this by the deadline. Yeah, yeah. How does that work? Well, 
as it's kind of sprinkled out, I can't remember if I saw it yesterday or a, a couple of days ago, but the statement essentially to, to Soto after he turned it down was, we've got to explore all options. Nobody, they didn't say, well, we're going to trade you if you don't sign this extension. And then, you know, uh, us talking heads and big J folks go running with it. That's why, you know, how, how can you be in the lead for a player that you <laughs> well, don't have? Do you yes. have the most interest or are you pushing for the most? You know, that's that's what I, I, I kind of wonder with those things. But there, it's such an enormous trade that I could, you could easily see them not being able to work out all the pieces. I know they've had two weeks to work on it, but this is a, a generational player, and for teams to decide what it's worth to bring in, that might take some time. And you don't lose that much value by waiting till the off season. You still get two full seasons, but having an extra pennant race with him would make giving up however many prospects and major league players that you're going to have to a, a little more worth it. So is, is it, what are the options after a trade deadline? None. So they dropped the, they dropped the, the waiver, yeah, deadline a couple three years ago before the pandemic hit, they they even dropped that. So after August second at five o'clock Eastern time, the only players that can be traded are non forty guys. Okay, so we don't know, but it's fun to watch. And, and it kicked off last night a little unexpectedly with, with Andrew Benatendi getting sent to the Yankees. Yeah, um, I. Similar kind of. That's the hey Joey Gallo's not really working. We need something else. Move. Yeah, but but they're they're similar kind of players. Uh, you know, very very far apart. But you know, left-handed hitting outfielders, yes. similar types uh, of fills that that teams need. I, I don't think this necessarily takes the Yankees out of the Soto running, but I think it gives you a, a little hint into how likely the Yankees felt a deal for Soto could be taken care of for this year for that exact reason that you said Joey Gallo can't even hit my weight. <laughs> you know, the left-handed hitter that turned out to be a much better acquisition was Rizzo. Oh, yeah, yeah of course. Who's surprised? And not just because <laughs> he got he gets a few cheapies into the right field porch. <laughs> <laughs> so that worked he's out. Been, he's been their only really left-handed option in that lineup all season. Again, Gallo's been there, but with his strikeout rate the way it is, yeah, they they needed somebody to diversify, and, and Tony could only do so much. So yeah, hey, come on, guys, I'm pulling my weight, <laughs> so somebody else here uh, do your thing. Um, but yeah, I, I want to see because Ben Attendee. Of course, the questions with him now are, will he get the vaccination? <laughs> and I, I just, you know. You know that wherever some of these other unvaccinated guys go, it, it, you know, there, there's going to be a series in Toronto. You just know. Yeah. You know that Toronto is going to just for this whole thing, just because this is this has got to be the story. Toronto is going to win the pennant. <laughs> well, and, and, <laughs> and that's, make it a thing. And people thought that was going to throw a wrench in some teams' plans as far as acquiring players, right? Benatendi to the Yankees in the East where they have, I'm assuming, at least one more series in Toronto, if not a, a, a couple more. And they said, you know, we don't care if it's three games, if it's five games, if it ends up being a playoff series, maybe he is going to get the vaccine. Maybe maybe they, they don't care, and, and all the games outside of Toronto are, are more important. But it, it's it's a very fascinating situation to to. It Watch. is, and it's not. I'm not saying from the political or the COVID health debate aspect mm -hmm. of it. I'm saying just purely from baseball. I'm going to laugh. Yeah. If Toronto wins the pennant, and therefore I think they should. 
Yeah. So we can have that extra juice to the whole thing. By oh. the way, Toronto's going to redo their stadium. Uh, I, I, that today. I need to look into that to, to see what it is. because Well, I've never been there, but I think the Rogers Center is really cool the way it's set up. So I, I wonder what they're they're going to do it as far as that goes. But outside of Philadelphia, when they went there and they had whatever it was, or no, the Royals were the team that had the 10 players yeah. that were out. Philadelphia had like four or five. But it, it really hasn't come up that much. Maybe it, it's because those teams haven't had to go to Toronto, but... Uh, I don't know if it's as big of a deal as we think it might end Well, up I mean, the Cardinals went without uh, was it Goldschmidt and Arenado that didn't go? Yeah, for but a they're two-gamer? National League team, so they wouldn't deal with that unless they faced in the World Series. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, no White Sox game tonight. They are off. Cubs are off till no no, no they're, tonight see, they're late. I thought they played last night, and I was staying up. You know, I. I Made my dinner a little later, even, and then I pull up Marquee, and they're showing some kind of NASCAR race, and I'm like, "Wait a second here!" And then that's I right. Pull the it up. Cardinals are off. The Cubs are on tonight in San Francisco. Really odd week. Cubs had a, all three teams had two game sets, except for the Cardinals and the White Sox had the Monday Thursday off days, and the Cubs had the Wednesday off day. Well, and with the Sox, right after a four game series squeezed into three days mm-hmm. against Cleveland to make up for the whole lockout stuff, so. Go figure. Weird, weird schedule. Okay. Uh, Talking some baseball, Adrian Burgos Jr. joining us next on some Hall of Fame and big picture stuff as well. Stay with us. Continue on Sports Talk here on this Thursday, July 28th. This past weekend, it was the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. One of those inducted was the Cuban Comet, Mr. White Sox, Minnie Minoso. Here to talk about that as a member of the Golden Era Committee who helped elect Minoso to the Hall of Fame, Adrian Burkos Jr. He's also a professor at the University of Illinois and I'm happy to say a friend as well. Adrian, welcome back to Sports Talk. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Yeah. Uh, we, we had you on when uh, he uh, when when this all came about uh, several months ago, and now it all came through to fruition. How was uh, the weekend in Cooperstown, not only for uh, Minnie Minoso's family and, and what have you, but also just the, the entire festivity? Yeah, it was a special weekend. Um Mini Minoso finally got in. I was there. I saw Sharon and Rice Minoso. Spent time with Charlie. Talked to uh, other members of the Minoso family that I was able to uh, enjoy the weekend with. His nephew Bernie, his daughters Marilyn and Cecilia, grandchildren that came, and it was a joyful time in Cooperstown. The Hodges family finally got to see Gil Hodges get in and Buck O'Neill and all those who support the Negro League Baseball Museum and Negro League Baseball celebrated Buck and Big Poppy. Oh, my goodness. The Dominicans were out in force. And so it was a very festive weekend. It was a beautiful weekend. And I'm just so happy for Minoso and the White Sox family to finally have that plaque in Cooperstown. And, oh, let me not forget Tony O, Tony Oliva, his brother was able to come out of Cuba, his brother Juan Carlos, and that made that 
extra special for Tony to have his brother, who he hadn't seen in years, be able to travel out of Cuba and see him inducted into the Hall. Vinoso joined the big leagues right after the color line was first broken in 47, of course, by by Jackie Robinson and, uh, you know, I, I think Larry Doby, too, preceded him slightly. But just because the color line was broken doesn't mean it was all uh, roses and rainbows, right? How hard was it for him when he first started playing in the big leagues? Yeah, and Minoso had the dynamic red. He was black and Cuban, so had to adapt to not just major league pitching. He had to adapt to living in the United States, a, a society where English was is the dominant language. He had to deal with segregation where folks didn't know how to really place him other than, well, he's black, but he speaks a different language. And so he had to do this assimilation, acculturation dynamic that um, no other black Latino had to do in Major League Baseball history. He was the first to do that. And as we know, the story of May 1st, 1951, when he was traded to the White Sox, he really made his mark right away hitting that home run in his first at-bat against Vic Rashi and the New York Yankees. And, yeah, many had to pioneer a path. And part of what we celebrate is, in fact, that he did so, a trailblazing player who excelled with all tools. And, yeah, he rightfully earned his his spot in plaque in Cooperstown. Talking with Adrian Burgos, Jr. here on Sports Talk. Hey, Adrian, this is Evan. You mentioned all those guys that, that were inducted over the weekend, but they are no longer with us. Buck O'Neill, Gil Hodges, Minnie Mignoso, and I think there were, were others on there as well. How did the families go about the weekend? How do they feel about you know getting to see their, their loved one being honored, but they aren't there to appreciate it themselves? What's the, the emotions around that? A lot of emotions. It's bittersweet, you know. Minnie was such a man of the people. You're talking about someone who would have truly enjoyed celebrating this with his family, friends, and baseball fans everywhere. That was Minnie. So, yes, Charlie, uh, his son, his youngest son, um, also the Minoso family lost Orestes Jr. in February. He at least got to hear the good news that his father was Mm -hmm. going in. They had played together in Mexico, um, but also for the O'Neill family and the Hodges family. You know, this was long overdue and you know it's wonderful to celebrate the accomplishment and just a little bit sad to know that you know buck and many were not there to uh, to really enjoy this you know on the flip side we had tony oliva who who did as an 84 year old get to celebrate this and he he shared one of the funniest lines uh in the induction speeches because he's like you know it's like if I didn't get in this time, I'd be dead. You know, it's like it's like it's like I didn't mean I was going to die, but it's just like I don't know when I was going to get another chance. So thank you. You know, I thought you were going to mention how, how he pointed out that he was good looking on his plaque. I don't know if he, he feels like he's good looking now, but he said that I, I think he said that's a good looking man when they they pulled his plaque out as well. But uh, really, all I I've never been to the the Hall of Fame in, in general, and especially. Not not the ceremonies. What all goes into it? We see the speeches uh, on TV, but are, are there opening ceremonies? What What is the whole day, uh, weekend for the Hall of Fame induction like? Oh, it is a fun weekend. It's there are 
So it's not just the Hall of Famers um, who are getting inducted this year. There was 55 total Hall of Famers there. And you're really seeing the greats of baseball come alive. Johnny Bench is there. Mike Schmidt is there. Um, I was So I was a, hall, a guest of the Hall of Fame this year since I had served on the election committee, which meant I had access to the Otisaga Hotel where the players stay. And really access is just to guests of the Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame members and families, and a number of media members. But in there, it's like, wow, there's Juan Marichal sitting there chatting with his wife. There's Dave Winfield, one of my favorite players growing up, sitting on the back porch. And uh, I had my table stolen by Kyle Rifkin. Um, I was being, uh, my daughter and I were going to go eat uh, dinner. And they said, oh, yeah, we're going to put you at table 71. And Kyle and his wife are sitting there. I was like, whoops. And, yeah, you're not getting that table back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Adrian Burgos Jr. with us. You know, David Ortiz inducted as well. And we were kind of having a conversation uh, about this earlier in the week because ESPN was re-airing its documentary about Barry Bonds and whether his Hall candidacy is deserved or not. But, you know, David Ortiz was not without some controversy in the steroid era, but one of the things that David Ortiz was was just charismatic, and I mean, and he endeared himself to a city, and and he was so important in in the World Series and, and postseasons for all that. I enjoy him now on television. Uh, he's just a winsome guy. Um, do you think that that plays into some of these folks getting into the Hall of Fame? Does that help? Uh, did that help Minnie Minoso, or is it kind of a cut and dry? Let's look at baseball uh, only. Well, I think actually in the case of Minoso, it was the opposite. He was so seen as a jovial guy that nothing really, you know, everything just rolled down his back. And they're like, well, it couldn't have been that hard for this black Cuban because just look at his attitude. He loves everybody, and and, and you know. Couldn't have been that bad, but you know the reality was he had to deal with a lot of uh, racial dynamics. Um, in the case of Big Papi, um, he, yeah, he he embraces the people, and the people embraced him, and that he was someone that loved talking to the sports writers, and you know Mitchell Report aside, and all the rumors and everything. Big Papi has a really interesting story, I and mean, he. Signed by the Mariners and let and traded to Minnesota, let, released by Minnesota. Um, Tony Oliva knew Big Papi when he was David Arias before he changed his name to Ortiz, and they shared stories about you know their interaction and um, you know his story is a really fascinating one and it does show you kind of the the trajectories that people can go through in their baseball journey. Adrian Burgos Jr. with us. Um... The the uh, I wanted to ask you about because Mini Minosio, uh from Cuba, a number David Ortiz, uh, Dominican. It, 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 this thought came to me the other day: Is there a smaller pipeline from Mexico compared to other uh, Latin American countries that have produced? I, you know, I think of first I think of Fernando Valenzuela and, and maybe uh, Vinny Castilla, uh, but is 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 there not as much of a pipeline coming from Mexico and developing baseball talent? Is just is it more of a soccer country? It, the story with Mexico is that the Mexican league has very tight control over their player market, 
and players belong to the league and not to individual teams, which is a way to protect the league from having the players just signed away, like an owner saying, it's a sell-off, and, you know, Wilson Contreras has got to go, and Chris Bryant's got to go, and, you know, that really sets up a different kind of dynamic where the league has to agree for the talent to depart. Um, And so that's part of the reason why we haven't seen much in the terms of uh, Mexican-born talent. I mean, you, you have your Julio Arias, um, oh, excuse me, Urias, uh, the the pitcher with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and you have a number of other Mexican-born players, Luis Sessa and others who are in the league. But it, it's a it's a much different path of entry into organized baseball, minor league baseball, and MLB for Mexican-born players than it is for players coming out of Dominican, where MLB ha- just about every major league team has an academy down there. A couple of them share their academy space, but you know they have that system in place to bring the players out, and um, it's very different in Mexico. Mexico has its long history with baseball too, and you know we can talk about that project at another point. But we have this uh, exhibit open at the National Museum of American History called Playball uh, in the Barrios and Big Leagues, and that exhibit captures in part the long history of baseball in Mexican communities, both. Uh, in the United States and in uh, Mexico itself. Adrian Burgos Jr. on Sports Talk here. Yeah, we didn't even work this out, Adrian, but Scott's question kind of leads into a a question I wanted to ask you. Over the last week, the MLBPA and Major League Baseball couldn't come together on an international draft, something that's been rumored Mm. for years and years. Uh, Where where do you stand on the international draft, and, and what do you think, the advantages and maybe disadvantages that are leading to not having an international draft here by this time? Well, what's interesting is that what the international draft aims to solve is the problem of the creation of MLB's organizational teams. That is, the scouts who are uh, finding ways to brook the system, to, to, to hide players, um, it's, it won't really help Dominican youth. In fact, it might actually hurt because instead of a whole bunch of players signing as amateur free agent every June, July signing season, they're waiting for an international draft, and it's a handful of guys who get drafted. First. And so the price that they would command is going to go way down. So I don't think there's a really big push in the Dominican Republic for an inter- international draft. Um, much of the issues that people have pointed to that the international draft will solve are issues that have been the development of the practices of major league organizations in uh, not Cuba, in the Dominican Republic and other parts of Latin America. So um, it's great for the owners to have an international draft, but I don't think that should be great for Dominican and Venezuelan baseball. All right, let's cut to brass tacks. Adrian, where do you want to see Juan Soto end up? And you can't say Yankees <laughs> just because you're a Yankees fan. <laughs> oh, man. You know, it, it, I think he's going to end up in San Diego. San Diego has not had a strong season. Um, and, you know, Fernando Tatis keeps uh, getting injured. Um, and it seems the Padres have been – basically trying to make every trade in the last couple of years to, to make the team better. And it hasn't quite worked. 
So, but they do they do have the commitment and they have a pretty strong farm system and young talent that it might help. I know uh, my uh, my in laws are big Mets fan and they keep trying to envision a, a trade where the Mets could acquire him, but I don't think the the Nationals are interested in in sending uh, Juan Soto a few miles north in the same league or same division, I should say. <laughs> Yeah, that's no doubt. And I want to do one more Hall of Fame question before we let you go. Uh, looking ahead to next year's Hall of Fame ballot, I know you don't vote for the, the modern day, or I don't know the exact wording for it, but uh, first time on the ballot for Carlos Beltran, I, I think he's an eventual Hall of Famer. How many times do you think it's going to take for his name to be on the ballot before he finally makes it to Cooperstown? I think because of the, shall we call it the trash can scandal? Um, <laughs> with the Astros, it will take a couple of, of, of times for, for him. I think he does deserve to be in. He, he was a, an excellent top-notch ball player. And we had, between the, the error committees and uh, Big Poppy getting voted in, we had seven inductees this year and, you know, we don't know if any first ballot guys get in next year. It's going to be close. Um, and there's a few like Billy Wagner, whose chances might go way up if they're particularly if there's this kind of sentiment, like we need to get somebody in, um, you know? So yeah, if we go from this really big celebration this weekend where the history of the game, really from Bud Fowler all the way to big Boppy, um, I recommend people check out Dave Winfield's uh, tribute to Bud Fowler um, because it really gives you a sense of the history that both Fowler and all of us who were there in Cooperstown were acknowledging through this weekend celebration. Adrian Burgos, Jr., historian of baseball, sports, Latinos, and Latinos in baseball, urban history professor at the University of Illinois. Uh, always good to visit with my friend. What's your next project? Ah, biography of Minnie Minoso. So <laughs> I'm in the middle of it now. So, well, White Sox fans will be especially interested, but I think all baseball fans will be uh, interested in that. Hey, uh, we appreciate you spending some time, and hope to see you around here soon. Uh, don't forget, you got a syllabus to start, you know, assembling <laughs> for this fall and everything. <laughs> yes, thank you for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> all right, be well. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, take care, guys. Bye, bye. Adrian Burgos Jr., glad to have him. We have more on Sports Talk after this. Thanks, Adrian Burgos Jr., joining us last segment for Sports Talk. Man can talk baseball for hours, and he knows so much on the history of the sport. Really grateful for his time. Um, the mention of Mexican baseball players made me think of Fernando Valenzuela. Makes mm -hmm. me think of Dodger Stadium. Made me think of um, stadiums in general and how baseball is is so tied to its venues. The cover of the Sun Times today for Chicago was all about the the Soldier Field mm. deal, and I want to posit to you: true or false? Stadiums and football aren't as big of a deal. True. True. I, it's I, funny you say that. I, I don't know why I was thinking a similar thing here in the last week or two. Just, yeah, you know, there's 
so many unique characteristics to each. That's what I saw. There, there's some guy who's doing his rounds. He's hitting all 30 stadiums this year and rating them all and, and all that. And it's like I, I'm looking around, and, yeah, each ballpark is unique in the concession stands that they offer and the neighborhood that they're in and, and all that. Whereas, yeah, football – it's this round bowl put in the middle of a parking lot, and you watch football there, and that, that's about it. Some of them are modern marvels. They're fascinating. I mean, the U.S. Bank Stadium up in Minneapolis is The newer inc- ones, yeah. yeah. Is incredible, and it looks almost like it's behind the times after SoFi Stadium and uh, Allegiant Stadium and, and all these new ones that have opened up out there in L.A. and, and Las Vegas. But I want to – I would suggest this – I want my theory is you can take away the stadium for most NFL teams and it wouldn't really throw fans too much except for maybe Lambeau. Yep. Possibly Arrowhead in Kansas City. I'm thinking as a facility yeah. that's kind of outdated but it sort of has its own special mojo. Yeah, right. Um but what other uh, venue? Where is there's so many venues in baseball? It, it 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 is the team, the team, and the and the the, the experience is is mm-hmm. one and the same. Whereas it was other places. Well, it's just a, it's a place, and it might be a really neat place, but it's a place to watch a football game. <laughs> Whereas that's an experience when you go to those ballparks. And you were saying that I think it was yesterday or a couple of days ago. We were asking is Seattle an underrated ballpark? I think there's a lot of underrated ballparks because to the the same thing, you know, each one there there's just something special about all of them. Even Bush Stadium, even O.co, even though it's a dump nowadays. But like there's still, you know, this is where Ricky played and this is where Al Davis's teams played and, and all that. Whereas yeah, I haven't driven by as many NFL stadiums in my life, but I remember when we were in Philly and, and they've got Citizens Bank Park sitting right next to Lincoln Financial and, you know, Lincoln Financial just looks like a giant concrete building, whereas you've got the bricks and the, the scoreboard mm-hmm. and all the tall lights and everything with, with the baseball park. I, I don't know I- exactly what it is, but yeah, if you put... And, and teams travel very well for neutral site games for football. So, yeah, it's not as much of an, an, I don't know, a focal point for fans when it comes to football. And that all leads me to this point is, and what the Sun-Times is suggesting, and I would agree, and I guess I can only agree because it's what I feel too, is if the Bears move from Soldier Field, I don't care. No. I like the Bears. I hope they are successful. And I don't really care that the only times I was really like proud that the Bears playing Soldier Field was, you know, when whenever as a kid, well, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are in town and they don't know how to handle this cold lakefront <laughs> weather. I'm like, yeah, that's Chicago's <laughs> tough, you know, and and monsters of the midway and bruising football and you can't handle 20 degree kickoff temperatures and the fog bowl. <laughs> against <laughs> Philadelphia that one game okay you're probably not going to get all that especially if they put a dome in the suburbs you're not going to get that biting lakefront wind anymore that gives the home team an advantage but I just don't I feel like they're still the bears if you move them mm-hmm. I, I don't care maybe you know, Soldier Field you're hard to get to maybe the diehards feel different but 
I think for all of the negatives surrounding Soldier Field, I think that's why we're okay with, you know, seeing it go. Whereas when Mark Cuban was rumored to buy the Cubs and it, it was all but assumed that he was going to take them out of Wrigley Field, if that happened, people were, were up in arms. Again, and don't you touch that. There's a reason Mark Cuban isn't the owner of the Cubs, and, and mm-hmm. I really think that's it because we know he had the money uh, to – to get the deal done back whenever the Cubs were sold, what was that, a decade basketball, ago? Basketball, I'm trying to think, how tight are you? When Chicago, I mean, Chicago State was terrible, <laughs> but it felt so romantic because it was that old basketball facility. You know, it's kind of like what Huff Hall here is mm-hmm. uh, to the, you know, like just kind of had that certain charm because of its age. But in reality, the United Center was way better, even though it was very corporate and a little bit mm-hmm. sterile mm-hmm. feeling. It didn't have the same noise or fans right there on top of you, but, you know, Michael Jordan didn't have to climb two flights of stairs anymore to get to the court. <laughs> <laughs> that's not. Uh, that's a pretty good idea. You know, don't wear them out before they get to the floor. But <laughs> yeah. basketball is kind of the middle ground, right? Especially when I think of, you know, college basketball, Cameron Indoor, same kind of thing. It's a dump, but people love it. And, I mean, MSG, like I mean, that's kind of a, that's a, like, don't change that probably mm-hmm. for the Knicks. But even Staples L.A. Staples Center, the, which is whatever, crypto.com. I mean, it used to be the forum. Com. Yeah, it used to be the forum, and that was kind of an uh, iconic building, but a lot. It just there's, there's nothing like the baseball relationship between it and its stadiums, and that's why I think all of this posturing that the mayor is trying to do in Chicago and all these uh, appeals to say, well, we could keep you here if we do this, or we could do this, or we could do this. And I think the fans and the public might just be like, meh. Yeah. I, I haven't seen too many people who are like, yeah, let's throw a dome on top of Soldier Field. We yeah, that'll solve keep, the problem. Keep the Bears in Chicago. It, there's just not a whole lot of banging into that drum. Especially in this day and age with football, where the whole argument is it's more it's it's better seen on TV in your lounge chair than it is in person. <laughs> I've had a hard time at NFL games because they seem to just take forever in person because the commercial breaks mm-hmm. and then the uh, where it was even with baseball i know going in that i'm gonna get gouged at the beer stand or the concession <laughs> lines but i still kind of want to be there yeah <laughs> well and you know how long the commercial breaks are they're a minute 30 seconds every time they've got a timer for you and as slow quote unquote slow as baseball is you have action from, you know, first pitch of an inning until the third out is made. But but it's even different than college football because you can, okay, Scott, but what about college football? But, yeah, but college football has some pageantry, a different kind of tradition to it. you got the bands. You've got the the student sections. you got just kind of the whole, the tailgate kind of thing. It's just different. Way different. I don't know. Mike Hales, the season ticket holder of the Kansas City Chiefs, he may have a completely different, and that's sort of its own beast. And so is Lambo. So, you know, that's on a bucket list. Like, I want to go see a game at mm-hmm. Green Bay, not because I'm a Green Bay fan, but just because that's an iconic venue. And it looks, it, it actually does look awesome for as much as I'm hating on Lincoln Financial, Lambo inside and out looks cool. Kansas City is rumored to be looking at a new location for oh, really? both their baseball and football teams. So maybe we will, ha- we will have to ask Mike about that. All right. I didn't know if we were going to, I didn't mean to take up a segment on that, but we just did. It worked out. Okay. Back in a moment. We'll do our last one right after this. Texter, uh, 
uh, text chimes in on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line to say that absolutely loved the old Comiskey Park. Yep, that had some charm. Um, and remember, the White Sox were going to leave if they didn't get a new stadium. Jerry Reinsdorf was going to pack up and go to Florida. And so they built a new Comiskey Park, and it was terrible. <laughs> and they actually had to shorten it. Mm-hmm. And it looks way different than I was... I know. I was there. <laughs> 1992, I went to games. It was sterile. You felt like you needed oxygen if you were in the upper deck. Uh-huh. You felt like you were going to fall into the lower deck because it was so steep. Now they've added a lot of shrubberies and green seats, and it looks a lot better. I haven't actually been. I I, I think I'm going to get to go to a game here in August. I haven't actually been to it since it was renovated since years back ago. Then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, since 1990-whatever. There was a... I should have saved it, and I probably got it saved somewhere, but there was a really cool article a few months back. I think it was in the Tribune uh, uh, about the guy who tried to make Comiskey 2.0, but it got shot down by the White Sox, and that's how you ended up with whatever they try to call that ballpark now. Yeah, but. and I mean, look, look at the United Center. That was, like I said, was a lot more sterile is the word. Mm-hmm. I, but it's... It's the biggest NBA arena, I think. It's yeah, put a, as many seats in there so you can sell as many tickets so you can make as much money as possible. <laughs> the house that Jordan built. Yes, All right, indeed. this was fun. Um, we talked in the first hour with Luke Goody. He's a basketball player for Illinois, and we enjoyed that. Scott Ritchie was in as well with Lauren. In this hour, we talked some baseball with Adrian Burgos Jr. Tomorrow we'll have some of our usual funky Friday. Uh, as we said last week, Evan could be gone, but he left us some funk. <laughs> but... Kind of like our baseball stadium discussion. Like the funk and Evan are really tied together. Yeah. So it'll be better with you there. Yeah, we're, we're going to get the band all back together tomorrow and it'll be like old times. Indeed. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. No White Sox tonight. They're back tomorrow night. And thank you to Joey Wright on the other side as well, helping us out. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana, coming up on 6 o'clock. Good night. <laughs>